Think Humanities, a podcast for people who love history, philosophy, culture, literature, civic dialogue, and the arts. Think Humanities, from Kentucky Humanities, where we've been telling Kentucky stories for 45 years. Here is your host, Bill Goodman. Tammy Horn Potter is the state beekeeper, or more officially and I guess scientifically, the Kentucky State Apiarist. She's the president emeritus of the uh, Eastern Agricultural Society, which we'll have to, uh, no, no, not agriculture. That's the uh, apiculture. Is that correct? That's correct. Tammy? Yeah. And, uh, but most proudly for Kentucky Humanities, she's a member of our Speakers Bureau and is available to uh, to make appearances, although she does a lot of that all over the state already and probably uh, across the nation uh, as as someone who is uh, such an expert. And it's so good to have you in our studio and to talk with you. I've heard of you and your name and hear you uh, on the radio and on other podcasts all the time. And it's uh, just such a pleasure to to meet you and have you uh, in the studio with us. Well, thank you for inviting me. Um, how did you get interested in beekeeping and uh, what is it about bees and how young were you? Just tell me your story of being a, a beekeeper. So I tell people that uh, having grown up on a farm in uh, Estill County, uh, I, I grew up on a pig farm. Mm. So when I finally went to college, I went to Berea College, I was determined never to do math, science, or agriculture, <laughs> none of them. and. Um, and so I, I succeeded at that. I became an English professor. Um, I, I was uh, quite happy being an English professor, but my, my grandfather had bees, and uh, one summer in 1997, I had just finished my dissertation, uh, he invited me to come help him with his honeybees. And I thought, I don't know about this. I, I, I sort of said, okay, I'll do it, but for, for one day. And, you know, I, I won't be suckered back into to farming any, any more than that. And, of course, I loved it. I mean, I absolutely loved it. It was one of these beautiful days like yesterday here in Kentucky when it was in the 60s and black locust was blooming. And, and what I found attractive about the, in addition to helping my grandfather with the bees, was that things became very specific in the, bee, in the beekeeping world. Trees had a season. They have a bloom time. They have a specific name. Uh, bees have specific roles uh, determined by age. And if you spend any time in academe, sometimes things can feel very arbitrary. And so what I liked about beekeeping, the beekeeping world was that it was very much driven by the specificity, and, and that's what attracted me to it. And I, so I tell people now, you know, I do math, science, and agriculture every day, and I love it. <laughs> well, I'm going to ask probably some very um, naive, uneducated questions about beekeeping. Uh, are, are there bees all over the world? Yes, there are 20,000 species. Not all of them are honeybees. There's only about nine different species that are honeybees. But there's, a, there's an amazing diversity of bees. Where... Um where does honey come from? Uh, and I'm talking about uh, countries or regions, or are, are there people uh, raising, uh, keeping bees and, and, and cultivating the honey from those bees all over the world? Yes, yes. And so, so the honey is actually a byproduct 
of a, a pro, you know flowers produce nectar and that's a lot of, of just sugary glucose uh, made from photosynthesis that it's the byproduct of photosynthesis so when the sun shines the flowers produce this nectar and it's primarily water and so when honeybees slurp that up then uh, they they carry that back to the hive uh, Honeybees have two stomachs, so one's called a honey crop, and so they carry that, that nectar back to the hive, and that's where they dehydrate it, and they add enzymes to it, and they finally end up producing what we would call honey. Um, that's how honey is made. And so there's honey made in Asia, for instance. Um, there's a type of bee that's called the Asian honeybee, that, and it's a huge bee, uh, Apis dorsata. Uh, it's as, as big as my thumb, mm. uh, my entire thumb. Um, so, and, and then there's a type of honeybee called the Apis florea, and it's the tiniest of the honeybees. And so it tends to make less nectar, or less honey, of course. Where is it native to? uh, Himalayas. Mm -hmm. And so, and then of course the African honeybees make honey too. Uh, They have a rather, I think, unfortunate reputation as being defensive, but African honeybees make, uh, they are unusual compared to the honeybees we have in the United States because they will pollinate any flower. Uh, The circumstances of Africa can be so severe that they can't be choosy when it comes to flowers. So they'll pollinate anything, anything and everything. So they make they make very interesting honeys. They're different than what we are used to uh, because we tend to be more used to clover honeys. We have a lot of fields with clover, especially here in Kentucky. Um, but we, um, here in the United States, we're quite blessed. We have some of those subspecies, as we call them, uh, but we have a type of bee that we call the Italian honeybee, and it's known for... Uh, it's known for really good honey production, and also it's good. It's a gentle bee, so we don't run from them like we do from African honeybees. Did it uh, migrate from Italy, or so it was brought here by mm. by humans. It was mailed here actually in the 19th century, mm. uh, and then in the 17th century, uh, English settlers brought their version of, of honeybees. Those were called German black bees. And every now and then, when I'm in Eastern Kentucky. I'll come across a really mean uh, cranky hive and and it's also a very strong hive um, you know as, as um, you know as unfortunate as it is that sometimes the the strong hives are the cranky hives you know uh, they're really good overwinterers and they're really good honey producers and so I kind of give them some slack if they're kind of cranky I, I, <laughs> I say okay <laughs> what is the best honey what is your favorite what how do you describe if you were to uh, talk to somebody about their first taste of honey ooh so so honey is you know super saturated sugar right it's it's the it's fructose and glucose in in a form that can't spoil uh, so all of the moisture has been dehydrated from that and so i actually have i love eastern kentucky honey i like I really like tulip poplar honey, which is a dark honey. It has a lot of texture to it. Um, it's it's almost looks like molasses. 
there's a type of varietal that we call sourwood honey. And when you have true sourwood honey, it is it tastes like a magnolia. Uh, the other phrase for sourwood is the Appalachian lily of the valley. Mm. And that's exactly what it tastes like. It's that powerful. Uh, but I like clover honey too, and uh, and I have, I, I just like it all. Truth be told, are the bee species different in producing that kind of uh, nectar for that kind of honey, or does it have to do with the flower that is? It's the flower. It's the flower. Yeah, they are opportunist, and the flower has devised these strategies to attract bees because bees and flowers evolved together, right? In the in the Cretaceous period, uh, millions of years ago. Uh, prior to that, you know, plants didn't need pollinators. And so it's only, you know, again, a couple of million years ago, 175, depending upon your research scientists, um, they've tracked it to ferns and ferns developed a little bit more sugary content and then flowers develop strategies from that. So the petal structure of a flower, for instance, will help a bee learn where to gather nectar from. Mm. And so the and it's easy for a flower to produce nectar. All they need is for the sun sun to shine. You know, so photosynthesis helps them produce this. It's very difficult for a flower to produce pollen, and the flower needs that that pollinator to pick up pollen and then take to another flower so that it can reproduce itself. So in 1997, you'd finished your PhD Mm -hmm. and you were ready to begin teaching at Eastern at that time. Were you you there first? Um, And then you helped your, your grandfather. And what happened then? So I tell people I am an example of somebody whose hobby became a career. Mm. Uh, And I think that that's an important thing, I think, for many young people to hear that it's okay uh, to not follow a straight path. Uh, I don't think we give young people enough encouragement to wander that way. Uh, But I had been teaching, and I was teaching at EKU, and I started writing about the use of honeybees in, you know, uh, like a book like Lee Smith's, uh, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or some of the other things. A real things. narrative, uh, uh, beautiful uh, writing, a beautiful work uh, that, um, like hers and, and probably many others that you could cite. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, Jesse Stewart mm-hmm. or Stevie Ray Vaughan. Mm-hmm. I mean, there were all, of, you, I just started seeing how many artists used honeybees. And if you think about it, especially in the 50s, you know, the honeybee is still, you know, people remember what honeybees sound like, you know, and they they used honey in their diets. Uh, But in the 50s, you know, people start buying cars, they start surfing, all of these other things that take money, that cost money. Uh, but the honeybee is still very close to people. Um, it's it's in our it's, it was at least at least like I said until until the fifties, you know it was very much embedded in our consciousness. You know with our hymns, our gospels, you know our um, our Burl lives uh, folk songs. That's right. I mean all of these uh, these great folk songs of you know uh, muddy waters and King Bee. I mean even though it's 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 <laughs> yeah. scientifically cor- uh-huh. incorrect, but 
but you know it was very much a part of people's subconsciousness and how we would and they weren't afraid of them the way that many people are today so you uh, started teaching and uh, this this uh, beekeeping was your hobby and then where was the point where you said uh, i want to do this full time uh, that would happen in 2007, 2006. The Kentuckians for the Commonwealth invited me on a writer's tour. And, of course, I was born in Harlan County, um, and but I had not seen uh, surface mining uh, the way that I, I just hadn't. It had been a while since I had gone back to Harlan County. Um, and so, you know, I'm seeing what is reclamation at that point in time of course we would call that a legacy mine now with some of the compaction that we would see on surface mine sites and thinking you know there are things that we can do differently here um you know of course the soil was compacted to the point that you know wildflowers couldn't grow as well or or trees couldn't grow as well and so i reached out to a couple of different uh, professors at forestry professors at uk people who were uh, behind the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative. And uh, we sat down to look at their seed planting mixes, all of which, of course, were approved by Office of Surface Mining. And so in 2007, I guess I should say in 2006, I was the National Endowment of Humanities Chair of Appalachian Studies. Wonderful. <laughs> in 2007, yeah. I was unemployed. So uh, I don't know if that was... <laughs> yeah. But I started I working. <laughs> yeah, it worked out. Uh, I started working with coal companies at that point because they were receptive uh, to adding uh, some species of trees uh-huh. that were flowering and, and very good nectar producers and pollen producers. And on, and they would flourish there on on the top of a, a strip uh, mine, a mountaintop mine. I, I need to be cautious here. They yeah. they would do well if. The coal companies would follow the four characteristics of the Appalachian Regional Reforestation Initiative. So if, you know, one was reduced compaction, Mm -hmm. that was one characteristic. Meaning that uh, the soil uh, was kept loose and not just uh, completely compacted down. Okay. Yep, that's correct. Reduced compaction was a big Mm-hmm. A big thing in terms of prepping a mm-hmm. site for tree planting. Uh, another characteristic was four feet of of soil that a lot of times would come from the mine itself, so it didn't have a lot of conventional pathogens. Um, you know, another characteristic was uh, focusing on high value hardwoods, but that's where our conversations really helped people at the federal level consider. Um, understory trees, you know, trees that most folks would call trash trees, but had incredible value to birds and 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 bees mm-hmm. uh, because they do uh, produce a lot of nectar and pollen. So we we worked with that, and modified that a little bit, um, and then the other, uh, the fourth characteristic is maintaining a twenty degree slope because trees grow much better on slopes as opposed to just flat land. Mm-hmm. So that was the, the four characteristics there of getting a, a proper site. Uh, and they do fine. Trees grow really well. If, if, those, if all four of those characteristics are in place, things go well. Now, that experiment or that effort on your part and uh, in cooperation with uh, the coal companies and many others, I'm sure, was for reforestation. Uh, 
did you try to establish colonies at mm-hmm. that time on the mountains? Yeah. And so all of the apiaries that we established, uh, the coal companies agreed would be teaching sites. Mm-hmm. So we would have kids uh, on school buses come up to the sites and we'd put them in bee jackets and veils and get in beehives and let them try honey straight from a hive. Um, we also taught queen production, queen bee production on these surface mine sites. Uh, but but that was a, a crucial component to this was, uh, you know, the I didn't want to establish an apiary if we didn't have enough flowering trees on them. Mm-hmm. And so, and also the other a- aspect of this is, you know, it takes a beekeeper as much time as it takes a tree to grow, to mm-hmm. be productive. It takes about 10 years for mm-hmm. a tree to mature and be a really good productive tree. And it takes a human about 10 years to be a really good beekeeper, mm-hmm. you know? So, so that's what we were going for. And, um, of their own volition, the coal companies would plant wildflowers uh, so that when the trees went out of bloom uh, in the fall, 